This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for August 26th, 2021, the back to school edition. I am David Plotz of CityCast. I am not in Washington, D.C. I'm on a working vacation, worky, worky vacation in Traverse City, Michigan, a beautiful place. Thanks for all your recommendation, GabFest listeners. Having a great time here. I'm joined, of course, by Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School from New Haven. Hello, Emily. Hey. How's empty nest life treating you? You know, I can't tell yet because it's only been a few days, but I, yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm like really distressed. I feel the same way I felt when my older son left for college, which is like, I see the benefit for him, for but my kids, but not for me. Like I see only downside for myself, but maybe I'll cheer up about it. I do like my husband, so that's good. Let's start then. Yeah. John Dickerson is, uh, is away for, I think this is the last week's John's away. It's got to be. He's, it can't be longer than this. Uh, but who cares? Because we have Jamel Bowie, the New York Times columnist, is joining us, as he often does. Hello, Jamel, from, I, I guess, from Charlottesville, probably. Are you in Charlottesville? Yes, I'm in Charlottesville in my home with my dog next to me. Hello, everyone. Hello. This week, we will talk about the Afghanistan exit. How much of a blow is it to American power, America's reputation in the world, and how much at fault are we Americans and American leadership for how it's gone? Then schools are back, and yet everything is still wrong. How is America poised to screw up yet another year of pandemic schooling? Then reconciliation. Will Congress manage to pass $4.5 trillion dollars? and Democratic spending bills, or will they not? Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. Hi, GapFest listeners. This is David Plotz later on Thursday. When we taped on Thursday morning, we didn't have news about the deadly attack outside the airport in Kabul. Had we known, of course, we would have had a very different discussion. Thanks. We're about two weeks into the abrupt American exit from Afghanistan and the collapse of the Afghan government, and the situation remains unsettled and tragic. The United States has, of, as of this morning, evacuated more than 80,000 people from Afghanistan, many American citizens, some Afghan allies. There are estimates that there are another couple of hundred thousand of Afghans who worked with the U.S. who might be eligible or might want to leave the country in the five days that is allegedly left on the American presence in Afghanistan. The airlift, I think, has gone better than expected. I'm not sure that that news has reached the ears of a lot of Americans um, because the recriminations have not stopped. So, Jamel, is this exit going well? Let's not talk about what went before it, but is this exit going well? So far, it seems the exit is going well. Uh, Americans, uh, the United States has lifted, last I checked, about 70,000 people, I think that's right, out of the country. And so from from the metric of, is the U.S. getting people out who want to leave? I think the answer is that, yes, we're, we're doing so. 
and we're doing a pretty good job of it um, at a pace that I don't really think anyone expected. Yeah, it seems like we've kicked into emergency drive, right? Like, there was the initial chaos that felt so underplanned, like the contingency plan wasn't there, the Biden administration had expected it to take months or more if the Taliban was going to take over the country, and they seemed totally flat-footed, and we had these horrible, chaotic reports from the Kabul airport. And now it seems like they have a fairly orderly process. It's not perfect. They're not going to get everybody out, right? There isn't enough time for all of those people you just named. And it does seem like the numbers of Afghans keep rising, which may be completely legitimate, but feels like this target that is, you know, kind of receding before our eyes. And yet, like, tens of thousands of people are going to get out safely, and that's something. Well, I think what's very unclear to me and may not be even clear to to anyone beyond whoever is doing the census on the ground in Kabul is of the people who are getting out, how many of them are American citizens? Yeah. And maybe their immediate families. How many are Afghans who have worked with us and are at risk and are, you know, then going to head to some third country and maybe to the U.S. one day um, in, in in gratitude of their their work and the danger they took on. And then how many other people, this 250,000 estimate is, I don't even know where it comes from and like what, by what basis we should trust it and whether every one of those people is in fact filed a, you know, a paper to leave the country. And does that represent everyone who, everyone, or is that everyone plus their families? And it's just, it's all very, very fuzzy, which makes it certain that some huge number of people will be left behind who will will there will be some set of afghans who wish to leave the country who will not be able to leave the country and that will be terrible for them and and it will be a black mark on the world and particularly on the united states but i'm not sure how how that could else that could be handled jamel if we had done this exit before that would have been a capitulation a concession that the afghan government wasn't going to survive so given that, do you think it was still mishandled or it was, it's been reasonably handled after, after some moments of mishandling? I think that the most fair thing that we can fault the Biden administration for is not having planned for the rapid dissolution of the uh, Afghan National Army. I think that is something that they at least should have had a ready-made contingency for. But that aside, it is actually hard for me to figure out what the alternative was in terms of getting people out. Because as you said, if two months ago, the Biden administration began an evacuation program, that would have been a vote of no confidence in the ability of the Afghan government to survive. It would have simply moved up this like rapid timeline for the collapse of the government. It seems that the collapse was more or less set in stone. It was going to happen. Uh, and I don't know how you preclude that. Um, I- I'll add the other thing I think the Biden administration could have done, and this really, again, this is on the margin stuff, is to have the personnel in place at the State Department to process visas, to streamline things. But other than that, you know, so much of the criticism has been has had this implicit premise that there was some other alternative. 
but I'm not sure that there was. Uh, and I think Americans are having a really hard time, are having a very hard time accepting that this is what defeat just looks like. Right. I agree with that um, in the sort of confines of accepting that we're leaving, right? I mean, the alternative was staying. Either right. escalating, um, you know, American troop presence, which there is, like, so little support for in the United States, which didn't seem to work when the Obama administration tried to surge, which we have so little to show for in terms of, like, permanence, uh, nation-building that Afghans could then take over and run on their own. There was this supposed kind of middle path, which is staying with a small troop presence for a kind of stalemate, where you're just like staving off the Taliban in the short to medium term, as we had been doing. We're not spending like we hadn't been spending tons and tons of money doing that of late American troops were not dying. And so I think some of the people who are criticizing the Biden administration, it's not that they um, really have a viable path to some clean, great withdrawal. It's that they're saying we should have stayed in some way. And then, of course, the question that raises is what? how long was that really going to work? But I think if you are thinking from the point of view of the Afghans whose lives were changed, right, all the girls who went to school, all the people who got to work, the people who were having a more middle class cosmopolitan life, our stay every year we stayed mattered to them. And so it's not nothing, right? It's just that it also had its risks and its downsides. And Joe Biden was not interested in it. He hadn't been for years. I will say that for the people in Kabul and some of the cities that may have been true, but for Afghans in the sort of the hinterlands, um, there was still violence. I mean, people were, Afghans were still dying, even if American troops weren't. And I think that any consideration of the cost of a continued occupation has to consider the fact that there would still be Afghans dying in numbers, you know, a hundred times greater than um, American casualties. And it's not, it's again, it's, it's unclear to me how long this was, uh, this was supposed to last. Why this, which this this occupation that really would have been for short-term political optics in the United States. What's amazing, what continues to amaze me, is yes, you certainly read stories about, and these are the stories that are heartbreaking, about girls who go to school or women who work, and our understanding is that this will, this will change terribly in Afghanistan. But what persists for me is how little the country has changed. There's amazing statistics in some of the stories about the Afghan economy, about how this is a, this is a country which essentially has no non-cash economy, that only 10% of Afghans have bank accounts. It's an unbanked country. And what that means is just it's, it's, it's living in a, in a totally different economic universe than most of the rest of the world. That would be sort of understandable if it had been cut off from the rest of the world. But for the last 20 years, the United States has poured all this effort and money and resources and energy and intelligence into trying to change it, trying to alter it. And the kind of failure of that is so complete and profound that it's it's like, how can you not conclude that the project was misbegotten to begin with and that any extra dollar spent there is is a waste of money. Did you did you, and, and there's a, there are kind of examples example 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 of this galore. There was an incredible story in ProPublica. This is more about military waste. About a twenty five million dollar marine building that was that was uh, built 
even though no one wanted it built. The Marie generals who oversaw it tried to have it killed. $25 million in a place that there was a small Marine base, never used, and now it's just like sitting in rack and ruin. And there's, you know, that multiply that times 20 years and all parts of the country, and you have some sense of what a what a complete catastrophic waste. And And just one final point on this is, like one of the things that is so maddening about the people who are who are painting this as this American humiliation and, you know, Joe Biden has disgraced America are in general people who have profited off of this war. They're people who have been working for a military or working for in the military complex, which where who have been paid, supported and paid to, you know, work for the, the contractors who uh, are building weapons and building and sending material and making billions of dollars off of the continuance of this war. And, they're totally complicit in this failure, and and but but are just accusing Biden of waiting, waving the white flag, even as they failed at their job. We failed at. I mean, we failed too. We as Americans failed. In fact, that's a question for you, Emily. It's like how have how did we how did we fail? How did we fail our leaders and our military and in, in Afghanistan? Aren't we I don't to blame? Know, do too? we fail our military yeah. or do we just have a completely unrealistic set of ideas fed by the military we didn't about pay what attention. the military you can didn't, accomplish? We didn't we didn't pay attention. We didn't hold people accountable. We didn't care. Yeah. I mean, I think in that sense, sure, you can blame the voters in America for all the choices that of American policy. I do think though that um, you know, the United States has a really bad track record in countries it has intervened in in the last couple of decades, right? There is a list of countries from the Center for Humanitarian Dialogue in which the United States has led or supported military interventions in decades of late. Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, Syria, Yemen. These countries are not better off for our having showed up. And I think you have to go back to Bosnia to find an example of what looks historically like a successful American intervention. I think we have delusions about our capabilities. We see ourselves as powerful and we are powerful, but that doesn't mean that we succeed in imposing our policy preferences in countries that we don't really understand. And so to the extent the United States voters um, fell for that and allowed it to happen and just kind of ignored the whole thing, sure, it's our fault. But I also think the foreign policy establishment that's been, you know, called the blob that has this um, bipartisan self-perpetuating effect bears responsibility, as does the military. They kind of work hand in hand. And you have to sort of step outside of that in America to get a real dissident point of view. I think you need to step outside of that. I think you could just go back, you know, 80 years before the advent of it to see an alternative as well, to see the military in the United States is not this omnicompetent, you know, untouchable organization, but kind of one institution and one interest group among many, which has pros and cons, and which has to be dealt with in a, you know, democratic and deliberative way. And I think that to the extent that there have been failures of the American public these last few decades is that we have, in this weird way, place the military outside of that democratic deliberation, that we don't look at the military as a thing with pros and cons. We look at the military as the troops we must respect. And, you know, I'm a military brat. 
Both my parents served for two decades each, more than two decades. My brother is currently serving. I, I have no disrespect for people who serve far from it, but I do think that in a democracy, um, we have to we have to bring the highest scrutiny to the military, and it seems that we've lost that. I, one just last very quick point I've been reading about uh, 19th century France, as one does, and it's it was funny to read how in 1830 King Charles, uh, the who is the reactionary successor to Louis the Eighteenth, uh, invades Algiers as a campaign stunt to stop, to try to distract from the victories of a liberal delegates in the uh, Chamber of Deputies, and then France ends up being in Algiers for like 140 years. And so is that, is that 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 to me seems like the actual alternative, right, for Afghanistan, that we made this political decision 20 years ago, and that if we don't leave, we're there for another 100 years. And I, I don't think we want our descendants to look back um, at us the way uh, the French people may look back at, you know, Charles. Right. And well, and also when the French eventually left Algeria in the 1950s and 60s, it was in total ruination for everybody and a sense that they had betrayed it was a sense of betrayal both of their own people and of the algerian people so it, it did not like it ended well right. even after 100 years it almost destroyed the french republic i mean it was it was a yeah. it was a catastrophe so emily as as we're taping this there is this august 31st deadline that joe biden seems to want to hew to there's a now uh, slowdown we're hearing in kabul of the exodus because of fears of an isis attack at the airport although it, it certainly the exodus hasn't stopped it's just been slowed down because of security risks do you think that joe biden is going to pay any political price for this here in the u.s and should he well he's certainly paying a temporary price I and mean, you can see his approval rating um going down significantly from above 50 to i think 41 percent and it is going to certainly come up in the next campaign. But if Afghanistan recedes, if the American media loses interest, if the Taliban aren't as brutal as some people are predicting, I don't think there is going to be that much of a cost. I mean, as I understand it, most Americans still support the withdrawal. And I mean, I can understand why, even though it has been so ugly to watch it proceed. This episode of The Gap Fest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura frames in the notes that I have here says moms like Aura frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an aura frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her aura frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an aura frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. 
Terms and conditions apply. School is back. Delta is rampant. Emily, the range of issues around school's return is astonishing. There's the question of should vaccines be mandated for teachers and other staff? Should masks be mandated for kids and teachers? Should the FDA speed up the vaccine approval for kids? Uh, there are questions about why available masks and testing are so bad. There's a lot more. Overwhelmingly, for me, it's depressing that we're in year three, school year three of this pandemic, and school is at risk again. And I want to know how we got here. Right. I mean, I think that there was a hope for the last part of late spring and summer that school was going to be unaffected by the pandemic this year and that schools didn't have to do a ton of planning for the Delta wave that we're facing now. Instead, we're in this pickle where, you know, rates are rising around the country and there's a ton of fear and vaccine and mask mandates remain very politicized and kids are not vaccinated. And so there is legitimate concern about spread. And then there's just lots and lots of anxiety. I guess one thing that I do find heartening is there is much more consensus this fall where there was zero consensus last fall that as many kids as possible have to go back to school in person. That seems to be something that is um, a commitment in blue cities as well as the red parts of the country, right? The red parts of the country had this commitment to a great degree last year and blue cities really, really didn't. And now the kids are supposed to come back everywhere. The problem is how they're coming back and and all the flaws that you just pointed to. I mean, I think we actually know a ton now about how to prevent spread of the coronavirus. And there hasn't been a ton of spread in school. But in the places that are the most eager to open, there are the fewest precautions. And so we're seeing thousands of kids quarantined in states like Mississippi and Texas that have gone back to school with no mask mandate, in fact, with in Texas, the governor is trying to ban mask mandates that individual school districts want to impose. So that is also like counterproductive. You have all these kids home quarantining. And one of the reasons for that is the lack of rapid testing, right? So as I understand it, Utah and Massachusetts seem like they have stood up these good programs where you can take rapid tests if you've been exposed as a child, and then you can stay in school as long as you test negative. But that has not become anything like the national norm. And I think we also are confronting, and I was interviewing for the Times, a bunch of um, educators around the country yesterday, and we're really still confronting fear of school among parents. And you can understand it, given the historic lack of trust in a lot of low-income communities where the fear is higher, and given the increased risk and exposure from COVID that they've experienced since the pandemic. But when you look at the data about how kids suffered, both academically and socially and emotionally, from staying home, it's staggering. I mean, it is staggering. And, you know, I was talking to the commissioner of education in Tennessee, and she said that they did a lot of, they did their testing last year. She defended that decision to test. She said it's important to know where kids are. And she said that among her economically disadvantaged students, that one in seven were testing at grade level for language arts and one in 10 for math. I mean, that's grade. just really tough. And everyone else is below. Yes. You mean grade level yes, or above? Yes, grade level or above. She didn't even talk yeah. about above. Yeah. Yes, everyone else is below. And those are drops. That is not a normal set of statistics for Tennessee. 
I mean, Emily, I, last week you you cited this incredible number that we didn't get yeah. into, but that as many as three million children may have disappeared from schools. Yeah. Three million may have been lost, which is just incredible. I mean, I can't believe that every one of those three million isn't really going to some form of education, but like the fact that they're untracked. Oh, is believe terrifying. it. I mean, just to uh, repeat this, that means they never enrolled, never logged on, never showed up. We don't know where they are. And, you know, whether they come back or not is an open question. So given given the things that Emily just cited, Jamel, both the political fights, the disappearances, the mistrust in, in among certain people of schools, like what should policymakers be putting energy into right now to stabilize, restore schooling for kids? You know, what I would like to see, right, are mandates, mass mandates, vaccine mandates. One of my frustrations over the last year and a half uh, has been that we, this country, is treating this fundamentally collective problem as if it can be solved by individual communities, when that's just not the case. The only way to get past a pandemic is to mandate what it takes to um, to tackle it, there's been talk since Biden entered office of the of the death of neoliberalism, right? Sort of the death of neoliberal economic policy because of our robust response to the pandemic in terms of assisting people, and because of these big agenda items from the Biden administration. But I, I hesitate to agree with that for the simple reason that if neoliberalism means sort of a devolution of the obligations and organs of the state of government to individuals, to market logic, then what we're witnessing is a neoliberal response to the pandemic, to controlling the pandemic, to neglecting the the tools and mechanisms of state power, which can handle this um, if used in favor of these more or less individual responses. I think as soon as we took various forms of mandates and requirements off the table, something like this was probably inevitable. And for my part, the only way to get past it is to is to mandate and, and, and to attach that to real penalties. But I'm 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 a status, you know, <laughs> another tw- I mean, I'm completely in favor of vaccine mandates for school staff. And actually, I think we should be considering them for at least the 16 to 18 year olds for whom the vaccine is fully authorized. Um I also am interested in the idea of offering incentives. Um, one person I talked to yesterday said that in Indianapolis, teachers get paid, I think, $300 as an incentive to get vaccinated. That's another way to go about this. I also think, though, it is not just the red states that are getting school policy wrong by any means. I mean, any city where you have indoor dining and no vaccine mandate for school staff is doing it wrong. Like that's the wrong set of priorities and it's the wrong set of risk assessments. We know that indoor dining is riskier. There are a lot of adults. The spaces aren't necessarily ventilated. All of the problems of infection are prevalent. And yet we have been looking past and willing to accept that risk while we've been much, much less um, committed to really keeping schools open. And if we see a repeat of that this year in blue cities, that's going to be on those cities and those policymakers. Emily, I'm interested in your take on masking mandates, too, because, Jamel, you you said you want mandates for for testing, I mean, for, for vaccination and for masking. Emily, you said you want 
mandates for vaccination, but you didn't mention masking. Masking, it feels like, has become a real touchstone issue around schools. And I wonder if you if, if you you not saying that means you don't think those are required. I don't I am I have been unconvinced by the evidence that masking should be required for schools. There are not randomized controlled t- trials about it. There is not evidence that schools that have no masking requirement, that schools that don't mask have higher rates of COVID than schools that do, that the schools that have maintained control over COVID have done lots of other things, namely mostly ventilation and making sure kids eat outside that appear to be more important. So I wonder if you're where you stand on the masking piece of this. I started by highlighting vaccine mandates because I think there is more evidence that they are crucial for um, preventing COVID spread in schools. I do also support mask mandates right now, given how contagious Delta is and given how reassuring I think they are for a lot of parents. You know, Josie Duffy Rice talked about this with us on the GabFest a couple of weeks ago, and her response made sense to me. I also think that it's important that we not see masks as lasting forever, as lasting beyond a moment where COVID spread is high in the community and and that we tie them to evidence the way we do every other intervention. Before we move on to another part of this, I actually have one more question for each of you guys, which is if you could have one policy, not by magic, but one one thing that would make the most difference to to make it likely that the school year would be successful, what would you pick? I mean, would you say like approved vaccines for for, you know, two to 11 year olds? What would it be? I mean, it would it would be approved vaccines for two to 11 year olds and mandated vaccines for everyone who steps foot in a school building. I mean, that's kind of that's kind of it. Other than that, it's like, I don't know, a bunch of funding to actually ventilate schools. Not not every school building in this country has um it's built in such a way that makes that a feasible option. I know my wife is a teacher and works in a school that is very old and for which ventilation is not really a, a viable option, especially for colder weather. Um, but that is all secondary to a vaccine approval for toddlers to, you know, teenagers and then mandates. Kid can't come to school if they don't get vaccinated. I guess what I would add to that is just feeling like this is a national emergency Because right now what's happening is schools are totally holding the bag, right? They're supposed to spend a ton of time and energy coaxing back anxious parents, getting people over this fear, which in a lot of places is a legitimate fear. Everything is coming down on them, right? There are a lot of teachers and counselors and principals making just like Herculean efforts to basically do something impossible, which is to prevent a slide, right? They're in this position where all they can achieve in a lot of places is to stop things from being worse, which is hard. That's just a hard psychological position to be in. Um, Like you said, David, this is the third year. A lot of people are exhausted. Parents are also exhausted. And Kids are suffering in these ways, and I don't feel like we think this is a national emergency. I don't feel the sense of urgency that I myself have felt about this since the pandemic started. It's like the country just doesn't prioritize this. I, I don't get it. Well, we had Juliette Kayyem, who was a former Department of Homeland Security official in the Obama administration, and she came on early, early pandemic, and she noted that there are these 24 categories of critical infrastructure. Education was not one of them. Schools were not one of them. And here we are 
in the third school year and school is still effectively not one of them. We still have not faced this. It's astonishing. I also think there's, I have a more cynical explanation, which is that the affluent kids are doing okay for the most part. I mean, the statistics about um, the problems with academic achievement and mental health are so much worse. They have exacerbated inequality so much. And, you know, I know in the place where I live, People whose kids are in private school or in suburban schools in Connecticut, their schools were open. Things were okay. It's the low-income kids who go to public school um, in Connecticut cities last year, especially in New Haven, who were home. And that's a pattern that's been repeated all over the country. So I think there is the way a way in which this cost is being so borne by people who lack political power that it just hasn't surfaced and grabbed people by the throat in the way that it would if it was equally shared. All right. We want to move in a slightly different direction for a second. Our researcher, Bridget Dunlap, is the mother of two young children who go to daycare. And we were talking about going back to schools. And Bridget wrote a note to to us just about the situation at daycare. And it was so vivid and angry that we thought, it would be great to have Bridget come on and talk a little bit about the crisis in daycare for a few minutes. So, Bridget. Yeah, it's a really scary time to be the parent of unvaccinated kids right now. And it makes me crazy that I can't look at all the data we already have from the kid vaccine trials with my kid's doctor and their pulmonologist and weigh the risk myself. Beyond prohibiting kids from getting the vaccine, the government still isn't providing us the other tools that we ought to have this far into the pandemic to keep kids safe. Like I would like to do surveillance testing at my kids' preschool, but when I contacted the state program here in Illinois that provides rapid testing in a lot of K through 12 schools, I was told there would be a $5,000 startup fee and we'd have to buy 5,000 tests over the course of the year. Uh, And that's just not feasible for us, for many daycares, which tend to be small businesses with low margins, you know, who have really struggled to stay afloat already throughout the pandemic. And the -the over-the-counter tests are too expensive for regular testing, but I'd at least like all the staff and families to have one on hand so we can test right away the next time we have a COVID case. But I can't find enough of those because now there's a shortage because we've just never prioritized rapid tests in the United States. And I'm frustrated we don't have the quality of masks that we should. I am persuaded by the evidence that masking can help in schools. Um, And my three-year-olds don't have much problem with it. But if they have to wear masks, they should be wearing the most effective one. But those are still expensive and hard to find. Um, and, and many of the protections that we do have don't cover daycares. Um, we have a vaccine mandate here for teachers, but it doesn't apply to daycare teachers. And I think if we can make toddlers wear masks, we ought to be able to ask the people working with them who really can reduce the risk to them in a more meaningful way to do that. So, Bridget, why can't you ask them? This is one thing. I understand that they're not under a mandate, but there's no way for, like, incentives or peer pressure or something to address this. I'm, I I'm, guess I'm surprised by that part. 
Yeah, we can ask, and I have asked to um, incentivize it, but it's just a lot to put on a small business um, that that runs, that doesn't make a lot of money, that doesn't have um, a ton of, of flexibility, can't just go find another childcare worker willing to to work at tough wages in tough health conditions. Um, and and every time that there's a COVID scare at your daycare, I presume, I feel like I've seen this just in your emails occasionally, it ends up being that parents cannot work or parents are, you have to take their children home because this this institution can't stay open. And so then you lose all this this time that adults have have planned to be working and that their employers have planned for them to be working, right? Yeah, and it's really disruptive for the kids too because they, you know, they get a lot out of school and one of my kids really has a hard time every time he goes back to school even though he likes school because it's hard to once you've been home with mommy and daddy to to go back. It's just a it's a tough process. Bridget Dunlap is the Gabfest researcher. Slate Plus members you get no ads on any Slate podcast. You get bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Dear Prudence. And and you get bonus segments from us on every episode. So if you go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus, you can become a member today. And our topic this week, near and dear to the hearts of Emily Bazelon and Jamel Bowie and distant from my heart, will be e-scooters and e-bikes. We will discuss. Go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The House passed a framework for a budget this week on party lines, which sets up a very hectic September. Uh, although, weirdly, it sets up a very hectic September, and yet Congress is poised to be out of session for the first <laughs> three weeks of September, or first two weeks for one House and first three weeks for the other, and yet they have to accomplish everything in September. They have to pass a budget, a $3.5 trillion planned budget using reconciliation. That's what Democrats intend to do filled with liberal priorities. They also have to pass a bipartisan $1 trillion infrastructure bill, and they have to extend the debt ceiling. Jamel, can any of this or all of it possibly happen? I think that the bills can get passed, at least the bipartisan infrastructure bill and a reconciliation bill. I don't know that a $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill could get passed. Both Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin in the Senate have said that they do, not, they do not want to spend that much money. And this group of moderates, centrists, whatever you want to call them, in the House have basically set themselves up to be able to make their own adjustments. So I'm not sure we're going to get 
$3.5 trillion in a reconciliation bill. But I think that bill is too high of a priority for the president, too high a priority for Democratic Party leaders for it to fail. And the fact that uh, leadership is still pushing through with this sort of two-track, mutually assured destruction approach in which if a reconciliation bill is not passed, the bipartisan bill will, sh- will surely fail and vice versa. Um, makes me think that it'll be, it'll be possible to get those two done. Now, the debt ceiling increase, I have no idea. Um, the decision to not put a debt ceiling increase into the reconciliation bill means that they will need to get to 60 in the Senate to do it. Uh, I don't really see that happening. Um, I have, of course, whole rants about supermajority requirements, but I will not go into them. I'll just say that I cannot envision how this happens, given uh, the Republican uh, minorities in both chambers' determination to make a debt ceiling increase um, a, a partisan bill. So just to explain, the debt ceiling is this is this totally mechanical function that Congress has to do, which makes no sense because it's just it's a nonsense thing. But if if it is not passed, the United States theoretically can default on on its payments. It is no longer allowed to issue more debt and and would be in default as it incurred obligations that it couldn't pay off. The Democrats are saying we're going to put this we're going to make a separate bill where we're all going to vote on the debt ceiling and it's not going to be in the reconciliation and you Republicans are going to have to cast a vote to raise the debt ceiling another 13 trillion dollars and if you don't we will go in default and it will be your fault. Yeah. So just as to the the, the function of the debt ceiling, I just I think it's worth a little more explanation just to emphasize how stupid it is. It's a purely political thing, as you alluded to, David, to create the impression, right, of voting for you're voting for overspending. But conceptually, it doesn't make any sense. Conceptually, it's as if Congress had the power to declare war, but somehow not the power to raise an army. The, the two things have to go together. I, I'm reading about 1790s debates about congressional power, so this is in my head right now, right? But like, if the Constitution didn't say that Congress can raise an army, the power would still be implied because it's a necessary part of making war. And in the same way, issuing debt is a necessary part of spending. And so, if you have to, if you have a limit on it, you've essentially sort of curtailed Congress's power for reasons that make no sense. I still think that the Democrats should put in one of their bills that they're going to raise the debt ceiling to a Googleplex dollars oh, yeah. and then never have to deal with it again. Oh, that would be so nice. I get so sick of this. It comes up again every time. It's the same tired debate. It's just like political hash for the reasons Jamel laid out. Ugh. Right. That's why they should raise it to a Googleplex dollars and it will never be discussed again. Agreed. That's so, it. Emily, what is in this this reconciliation bill or this reconciliation bill, which actually hasn't been written, but that people have talked about that is so uh, exciting to progressives and liberals that it's so important that, that it get passed. Ooh, so many things. There is a whole bunch of money for um, pushing the electricity sector to reduce pollution. So lots of renewable energy incentives, climate change, 
great healthcare stuff. This might be my favorite part. Medicare expanding to include dental, hearing, and vision coverage for Americans over the age of 65, right? That's really important. Then there is um, education. They're sending three and four-year-olds to pre-K, making that universal. And then there's trying to make community college universal. I'm just going to bracket that I think we should at some point make that a separate topic because I'm not sure quite what I think about that given the importance of four-year versus two-year degrees for people's economic mobility, but I haven't done enough research to really know what I think. So anyway, we could go back to that. And then there's extending the child tax credit, which is in the pandemic plan, right? It's happening right now that families are getting up to $300 per child per month, but it's supposed to expire at the end of the year. And this would make that permanent, which would be huge. And then there's tax increases to pay for this, which is a way of, you know, redistributing wealth in the United States, taking it away from the highest um, income brackets and super wealthy corporations. So, Jamel, if Manchin and Cinema, and then more moderate Democrats in the House constrain that $3.5 trillion bill, where do you think it will get constrained? What are the parts that are going to get squeezed out of it? I honestly can't say because oftentimes their cuts are entirely arbitrary. I believe that the bill includes some spending on housing. I wouldn't be surprised if that becomes less generous. Um, the healthcare stuff, I would imagine, might stay intact just because one of the things that Manchin in particular wants to accomplish is making the Affordable Care Act subsidies more robust. And so I, I imagine that that stuff will, will stay just fine. Maybe some of the clean energy stuff may become less generous. If assuming this all goes through, I don't think there's going to be drastic cuts. I imagine that they'll try to trim off a half billion dollars from various points. I think that that is what everyone will be fine with. It it may just involve, this isn't trimming, but it is a, is a difference, sort of the tax increase is not being as steep on high earners and, and wealthy corporations, even though I think they should be even higher than they are. Less for balanced budget reasons, more for tax than more reasons. Jamil, in your column this week, you made the argument that the bill perhaps isn't big enough. As someone who tends to get a little deer in headlights about any number that has a T for trillion, not in a rational way, just because I big numbers are big numbers. Could you explain that argument? Sure. When you're thinking about the federal government spending vis-a-vis the American economy, your denominator ought to be the actual size of the American economy, right? Your denominator isn't really federal tax receipts. It isn't really the federal budget. It is the productive capacity of the United States. And so in 2020, that was about like, I think it was a little over $20 trillion. I think the 10-year- 21 trillion. 21 trillion. I think the 10-year projection for the productive output of the United States is like around $300 trillion. Let's say $275 trillion, give or or take 20 trillion, right? And so viewed in that sense, a 3.5 trillion, 4.5 trillion, if you include the bipartisan bill, $4.5 trillion of spending, most of it over 10 years, amounts to like a one and a half percent of the productive output of the United States. And I think viewed in those terms, we ought to be thinking much bigger, given the amount of work that needs to be done in modernizing and shoring up and constructing new infrastructure and constructing new programs. Now, I understand that this is just not how people think. I think a lot of people are like you, Emily, when they see those big numbers, they just, you know, it's a big number. And in a practical sense, 
a trillion dollars is an almost meaningless number. Like, what does it even look like? I think uh, of it, it's like purple. It's on velvet and it's got, it's purple and it's got gold tassels <laughs> is what it looks like to me. I think people just don't have a sense of how big the United States is. And I think that a lack of a sense of how big this country is really interferes with how we think about this country. This is a gigantic country, over 330 million people, a $20 trillion economy, you know, we're spread out over over an entire continent. It means that lots of things that, for example, become trend stories could involve a million people and mean, in the context of the entire country, mean absolutely nothing. When you recognize just how big the country is, how big the economy is, especially when it comes to thinking about the economy and government spending, the numbers you're going to be playing with for even modest impacts are going to be huge. And that's not to say that you shouldn't argue about them and debate about them or even worry about them. But it is to say that if someone's proposing a couple trillion dollars in spending over 10 years, it really isn't that much money relative to the actual size of the U.S. economy. That is a very vivid point. I would, I guess I would argue the counter a little bit, which is a trillion dollars is $3,000 per American. So if you're saying we're going to add $4.5 trillion, that's $15,000 per person in additional government spending or in government spending. Maybe it's not additional government spending, in government spending. Right. That's not nothing when you think about it in those but if you as think a, about it over person. 10 years, it's it's much. It's not $15,000 that year. And I generally will push back against all sort of like, this is what this is per person analogies, just because that we don't really, no other kinds of spending are thought about in those terms. The proper term for thinking about, I think that spending is the capacity of the entire economy and not an individual taxpayer. And I, I, I think that actually thinking in terms of an individual taxpayer leads you astray more often than it points you in a good direction. But even granted that, $15,000 over 10 years, $1,500 a year for someone, um, or what's that? That's about, that's uh, 150 bucks a month. That's not nothing, right? That's, that's I would like an extra $150 a month, but it isn't, uh, for most Americans, for the median American household, it is, you know, a quarter of their uh, grocery bill. It is what they spend on gas. The child tax credit is $300 per month per family or up to that amount. Right. So that's like an actual give back where you're redistributing wealth to families directly. Right. When you start to think about what people are actually getting for that amount of money, it is, it's quite a bit. Do, do you think, Emily, the Democrats have learned the lesson from the Obamacare world, from Trump's, from the, from, from the Obamacare, con, the way Obamacare was constrained to meet certain demands of, of conservative Democrats, the way Trump spent wildly without any consequence? Have they learned that spending, you should just spend, you should just spend and spend and not really worry about it, and then actually you're you're not going to pay any political price with anybody who matters. Yeah, it does seem like that we're back in sort of New Deal mindset of spending to make policy. I think also Democrats are responding to the constraints of the filibuster. I mean, there are some really important lawmaking um, levers that they would like to pull and should pull. And I'm thinking now of, you know, voting rights, changing labor law. Like there are some really crucial things that would help the United States that are out of reach because of the filibuster in the Senate right now.
let's go to cocktail chatter. I know, knowing Jamel and Jamel's fine uh, planning, precision, research skills, that if he were having a cocktail, it would be a very well-made cocktail. There would have been a huge amount of research put into that cocktail. I don't know if you actually drink cocktails, Jamel, but if you do, I bet it's a great cocktail. So you can tell us about that, or you can just give us a cocktail chatter. I think I'll just give you a cocktail chatter because I'm much more of a wine guy. Um, but okay, so I feel like usually when I'm on here and I do a cocktail chatter, it is something high-minded. But I was this is something very low culture. I was talking to some friends recently about blockbuster soundtracks from the 1990s. So if if you remember movies from the 1990s and blockbusters in particular, they would release the uh, the score. As, a, as an album, but also a collection of music inspired by the movie. And often these soundtracks were absolutely wild, just sort of full of stuff that had really nothing to do with the film, but, you know, the artist got paid a bunch of money. And so the one, uh, the, one, of, the, one of these albums that really stands out to me and that I think people should listen to as a fascinating artifact of 1990s movie culture is the album for Godzilla, uh, the Roland Emmerich 1998 Godzilla film. Uh, it's called Godzilla the Album. It uh, <laughs> just just looking at the track listing right now, um, it has The Wallflowers, it has a Diddy song featuring Jimmy Page, it has Jamiroquai, if you remember that group, um, and it has one song in particular called No Shelter by Rage Against the Machine, which is a song that uh, blasts the listener for even going to see the movie because it is a distraction from the capitalist oligarchy. And this is like track number four on the Godzilla the movie album. It's really funny and really strange, and uh, people should check out the whole thing if you can find it. It also sold very well, went uh, went platinum in the U.S., uh, so people ate this thing up. Just like Godzilla ate up American cities. Emily, what is your chatter? I was really interested in the story this week about OnlyFans, which is a site that has a lot of creators on it. This is a site that kicked off all its adult content providers saying that they were having a banking problem. But it was like a real kind of blow to adults who make sexual content because like suddenly they lost this important forum for getting paid. And then OnlyFans reversed itself somewhat mysteriously, didn't say exactly which of its banks or whether some other bank had stepped in. So I'm interested in this for two reasons. Since the passage of these laws that are called FOSTA and SESTA for short, and please don't ask me what those acronyms stand for, but we've had um, much more push from social media platforms toward banning adult content, even if it's perfectly legal and people are making it consensually. And this seemed like another step in that direction that was being driven by this issue of what's called the, the stack, right? It's not just that you need a platform, you also need all the parts of it that allow that platform to operate, like whatever's protecting it from spam attacks and um, denial of service and the financial providers, the credit card companies. So to see OnlyFans take this platform away from these creators, but then give it back because the bank seemed to have popped back up and agreed to... Um, play ball again. It's just like an interesting, I guess, version of the problem of deplatforming that looked like it was about to happen. So anyway, OnlyFans back for adult content creators. I have two chatters, one real chatter and then one just brief one. My real chatter is if you have not read Atul Gawande's piece in The New Yorker, a 
Costa Ricans live longer than us. What's the secret? Go read it immediately. It's an amazing story about how Costa Rica's health system works. And if you are in despair about the failures of government or your sense like government can't do anything right or public policy, it's hopeless. And indeed, in the United States, it often looks that way. This is this article's a tonic. It's just about how the efforts of public policy in Costa Rica, notably the placing of public health as a as a good, not individual health, the public's health at the forefront of government priority led Costa Rica to make a series of decisions that has made the country healthier, happier, more prosperous than any comparable country in the world. It's a, a brilliant story. Check it out. Uh, and then one other thing about public policy is that, it, so I'm here in Traverse City and was hiking on the Sleeping Bear Dunes the other day with my girlfriend. Great, great dunes. Go hike there if you can. Love the name of those dunes. Oh, yeah. That's excellent. Yes. And they're astonishing. They're huge, enormous dunes. And as we were hiking, we we um, fell into conversation with a pair of Chinese grad students who go to American universities. They're science grad students and in in STEM fields and at very good universities. And just had a nice time. They were just having a summer trip together. Uh, they're here on student visas. And, you know, they just were not confident that they were going to be able to stay in the U.S. and work in the U.S. when they got their degrees in a year or so. And they were bummed about that. And it, it was just like, it was just so, the thought that these guys who have made this incredible effort in their life, who are obviously so freaking smart, who are working in fields that are, I'm not going to say what they are because I don't want to put them and expose them at all, but at fields that are like relevant to the national prosperity of the United States, that we would not do make every effort in our power to keep them in the U.S. where they want to stay is crazy now i understand like there's they may be spies for all you know very likely they're spies it's also likely they'd go back to china and take their the intellectual property they developed in the u.s and take it back to china but to not use this research when we spent all this money and effort training these people at american graduate schools is crazy to me so that's just a just just a note that if we should keep keep people who come to study here as long as we possibly can and it's not not give up on them i just to just to add to that when i was in college i lived my whole four years at uva's international dorm and so many of my friends from college are were international students and it has depressed me to know when how many of them basically had to leave the united states because they couldn't get um work visas people who spent four years here who you know loved living here um who have connections here but who had to go elsewhere go to canada for example uh, because they couldn't manage to stay here. It, very, very disheartening. Listeners, you continue to send us excellent chatters week after week after week. You tweet them to us at, at SlateGabFest. In fact, Carl Cronlage tweeted that Atul Gawande story I talked about to me, and that's one of the ways I heard about it. So thank you, Carl. Uh, but our listener chatter this week is from Nilo Garza, and it's about a interesting lawsuit against U.S. gun manufacturers. Hello, GapFest. So I came across this um, news on the Daily Podcast, and I looked it up on the NPR site to confirm it. And earlier this month, the Mexican government announced its intention to sue U.S. gun manufacturers, basically placing part of the responsibility for drug cartel violence on U.S. gun manufacturers. 
and it looks like they are trying to utilize a loophole in the PLCAA legislation. Um, it's also known as PLACA legislation. It's a federal gun statute. Um, in any case, I was actually very excited by the direction this may take, and maybe I'll just bring the whole discussion to the forefront. Thank you. That's our show for today. The GapFets is produced by Jocelyn Frank, our researcher, and co-commentator is Bridget Dunlap. Gabriel Roth is editorial director of Slate Audio. June Thomas is managing producer, and Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Please follow us on Twitter at, at @slategabfest and tweet your chatter to us there. For Emily Bazelon and Jamel Bowie, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We will talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? So, as you probably know, I'm a big, big cyclist. I like to bike around everywhere. But apparently, Jamel and Emily have different ways that they like to get around. And they're here to represent the e-revolution in personalized transportation. E-scooters, e-bikes, you guys are going to make the case for it. I'm going to hit here, sit here and just skeptically throw darts at you. And okay, so wait a second. This is ridiculous. Because if you're not in your own city, you don't have your own bike. I also ride my own bike around my own city. But I have been with you when we have tried to rent bikes in other cities. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. It's nothing to do with e-bikes. I thought you were talking about e-bikes. I, it has to do with the and apps. E-scooters. Yes, that, oh. Electric oh, ones. no, I meant the apps. I didn't mean the electric part. Although, no, start, with, start us with electric bikes. You defend the electric bikes. I've never been on an electric, electric bike. Electric bikes are great. I I'm love a huge bikes. defender of the electric bike. Um, <laughs> so I own an electric bike. I have a Turin GSD. It's an electric cargo bike. Um, it weighs about 75 pounds. It can carry two kids, carry a bunch of groceries. And I live in Charlottesville, which is very hilly. So having the e-bike has been great for kind of getting around quickly without my car. I have a regular bike. I have a folding bike, and I use those for ve- Excuse me. I use this for various things. Listeners, too. you my have not lived until problem. you've seen Jamel Bowie with his folding bike. It is amazing. I know, that <laughs> is, is amazing. Really, is I like, want to see that. When they make the Jamel Bowie documentary, it will begin with Jamel Bowie, I think, arriving on his foldable bike and then folding his bike up and then it turn elegantly, Natalie attired, then step in front of a microphone and begin to, to hold forth. That's the Jamel Bowie. Yeah, folks, I'm I'm a, I'm a walking cliche. I mean, it doesn't really come across on the audio, but I'm a huge uh, hipster cliche. Um, I have wanted a folding bike since I first saw one, but I'm so convinced I won't be able to fold and unfold it. Like it is just the case that I won't be able to do it. But of course, you can. <laughs> the the case for e bikes is that, especially if you're living in a city or in a compact area, they really can replace a lot of car trips. I think they can probably replace most car trips. And if you're thinking in terms of the environment, in terms of climate, I think that's important too. But I also think that in terms of just personal convenience. That was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.